Here we go. Season 7. If you missed it, here's what we believe. 66 book canon. We believe in a 66 book canon. There is no more. There is no less. It's 66 books. That Yeshua, who is preached by the apostles in the Gospels and in the epistles, is the only means of salvation, as we're calling Yeshua, means. In other words, justification is by faith alone and not by works that any man should boast. Faith working through love. We are unashamedly Trinitarian. We're also unashamedly uh, doctor, believe in the doctrines of grace, what is commonly referred to as Calvinistic. The, the new covenant is not time bound. That is to say that the, the horizon of the faith of our father Abraham is no different. Right. No, no, it is not shy of the horizon of our hope and our faith. In other words, the, that salvation was salvation was the same for Abraham as it is for us. Right. Wednesday, February 19th, 2020. This is Messiah Matters number 289, making it up as we go along. My name is Caleb Hegg. And also making it up as we go along. <laughs> you can tell the production I love that. I, that music just makes me want to dance, man. We need like a we need people who are skilled with dance to choreograph the Messiah Matters dance that goes with that song. No doubt. <laughs> I still think that the idea of having a uh, sh- one of our shows, uh, like we, ha- I had a dinner party one time. I forget who it was. I'm sure they'll remind me now. But they, they, oh yeah, I think it was people from my <laughs> my church. <laughs> they said that they were going to take audio from one of our shows, and then make puppets of you and me, and do the whole, like re video the whole show with puppets. That would be awesome, or even a little clip. Oh man, yeah that 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 would be really funny. Of course, good puppets are hard to come by, and good puppeteers. We've been messing with the sound all morning long, so I don't know if it's too loud, <laughs> too soft, whatever. Chat room, you're gonna have to let me know. <laughs> that makes me laugh. And <laughs> wouldn't that be good? Little puppets, or big puppets. We talked about doing a show that was like. Robin Caleb Mystery Science Theater 3000, Dude, but it's like so funny. We watch like a clip of some teacher, and you see our our uh, just in the silhouettes. Corner. Just you see silhouettes. our silhouettes, and we look at each other and we talk about it. <laughs> it's like we're in the back row. Did he say like, "Holy cows"? Wait a minute. Wait, did he just say that? <laughs> uh, the ideas we have? Um, yeah. So speaking of ideas that we have, today is not. We've had two weeks to think about this show. We have nothing. We, we've got... We don't have nothing, but we almost have nothing. We have next to nothing. We have next to nothing to talk about. <laughs> we, I mean, it's been a, it's tr- been well, a we have a, We have a world to talk about, but we have not prepared, we should say. It's not just that. We just really don't we have topics. Talk, we don't have we good topics. a lot of stuff. Here's the problem is that uh, we have been in the office here. We have been working so hard to get this new site up and running. Now, when it switches over, the people who go to it will probably be like, okay, I don't... I don't even see really a big difference or whatever, but it's, it's huge. Anyway, every waking second has been, you know, I was laying in bed last night for two hours. Couldn't get to sleep. What was I thinking about? The website, the launch, like let's launch this thing and get it going. I don't know. As soon as we, as soon as we launch this site, I think what we're going to have to do is have like a, a, a behind the scenes Q&A for our supporters. And so that'd be cool. Hey, so I'm going to kick us off. Kick us for off once, bro. for once. Do it. I'm going to grab the grab the mic. Step up to the helm. Grab the mic here. OK, 
So I want to do a book review. Do it. It's not really a review, but uh, Ben Noonan, Dr. Benjamin J. Noonan, good friends of Tor Resource, he and his wife, Jennifer. We love them, by the way. They are just fa- yeah, they're, Dr. They're and Dr. Amazing. Noonan. We've talked Doctor about them Doctor. before. They're just absolutely fantastic people. Um, anyway, and uh, they just got back from Egypt. They did a private, I think they did like, well, it was a short, a small group, tour of Egypt with Dr. James Hoffmeyer, who I believe grew up there. Could you imagine that? I mean, I'm like, I want to go. Anyway, uh, we're celebrating Dr. Noonan's new book published by Zondervan Academic, and it is uh, Advances in the Study of Biblical Hebrew and Aramaic. Here's kind of a dark shot of it. Advances in the Study of Biblical Hebrew and Aramaic. And this is amazing. By the way, we should just mention Dr. Noonan graciously, without any prompting at all, sent both our office and Rob a copy of his book. Yeah, I got a signature on mine. I'll even show you. Stellar. Right Stellar. Right there, man. Um, he he gets into, well, I'll, I'll cite Dr. Noonan uh, himself here. Uh, this is from the beginning of his conclusion, but he kind of, just in one short uh, passage, conveys the purpose of this book. It says, I began this book by presenting an all-too-common dilemma. So there's a dilemma behind the production of this book. What's the dilemma? Hmm. The study of biblical Hebrew and biblical Aramaic, and this is going to hold true for biblical Greek also, is necessary for those who want to interpret the Hebrew Bible or the apostolic writings for Greek faithfully. But those reading the Hebrew Bible in its original languages face difficulty in grasping the linguistic study of the Hebrew Bible. So in this book, I've sought to remedy this problem by providing an accessible introduction to the world of biblical Hebrew and biblical Aramaic scholarship. My aim is that this book will introduce students, pastors, professors, scholars to current issues, issues of interest on these languages so that they know why these issues are important for understanding the Hebrew Bible. And he, he, he cites, he has a Luther citation here, which is really good. Uh, Luther says this in his, uh, uh, to the councilman of all cities, says, we will not long preserve the gospel without the languages. If through our neglect, we let the languages go, which God forbid, we shall lose the gospel. So the, the, uh, Dr. Noonan is presenting this book, and this is a, it's a good sized book. I mean, it's over 300 pages um, to, and each chapter addresses things like lexicography, verbs, word order, um, dialect issues between North and South, uh, different uh, Semitic languages being used or non-Semitic languages being used, um, teaching biblical Hebrew. Each of these are chapters that dive in. And then once you're in a chapter, he takes you through multiple perspectives that are pushed out there by different top scholars. It's, It's an amazing resource to have. And um, his, his point is, you know, on a simple front, a, a person growing up saying, you know, I want to go into ministry. I want to study Bible languages because I want to be able to read Greek or Hebrew and I want to be able to translate it. And that's a good goal. But once you step across that line and you start learning, you start to realize there's a huge world that you're slowly reorient, reorient, reorienting yourself to. And there's a whole history of people who've gone in before you who've made important observations and, and uh, leaps and bounds in education and how to understand Hebrew. And we all benefit from all those labors of people. Um, now, he'll, he'll contrast different views in one chapter. He'll, you know, in one chapter, he'll say, this scholar says this about dialect or dating, dating manuscripts. Like one big issue is the dating of the Aramaic of Daniel, you know, Popular liberal scholarship today put Daniel in the Maccabean era. They put it in the middle second century BC. Um, but there's also scholars that say, wait a minute, there's it's totally Persian period, right? So he'll present contrasting views and help, and this helps the person coming into this field 
get a sense of the territory, you know, get a sense of like of the terrain of what it means to think inside the biblical Hebrew world in an effort to not just stay there, but an effort to be better at understanding God's word and then communicating it to people, the layman or whoever's out there depending on the teachers. And it, what, one of the things that highlights and is that we, on the internet, on YouTube, you know, there's people who don't really know Hebrew that are teaching Hebrew. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's, there's people who are teaching like Hebrew word pictures and all sorts of stuff. And it's like, man, like, I would like to see them even try to understand anything that's in Dr. Noonan's book. You know, I, they should read it. They should read it and realize, man, I got to go to school. You know, it's not a light thing, right? So the book that uh, just in case anyone is interested, the book that we have been talking about or that, uh, that Rob has been talking about is advances in the studies of biblical Hebrew and Aramaic. It's published by Zondervan 2020 by Dr. Benjamin J. Noonan. Find it, 336 pages. Find it online. It's all over the internet now. And uh, if you have any interest in this kind of a study, I would obviously recommend it. Uh, Dr. Noonan is just a, a treasure. And so is his family. Anyway, okay. Um, and not just his, like, his mother as well is a treasure. Just uh, wonderful people all around. And they're great, great friends of Torah Resource, too. Okay. Uh, yeah. Great friends of Torah Resource. Um, Evelyn asks, Caleb, is your study on the Eucharist aligning with your father's article, Investigation of the Lord's Table? Um, you know, it's been a very long time since I've read my father's work on the Lord's Table. I believe that it is aligning with that because we both take a historical grammatical interpretation of things. Um, I would assume that it's aligning with it. But I think that the scope of the paper that my father wrote is a very different, uh, it's, it's in a very different focus of study than what I'm doing. At least it, I, maybe I shouldn't say that. Up until this point, it has been. I've written about 70 to 75 pages on, um, on the, the, well, on the Last Supper, essentially. I just entered into 1 Corinthians. Um, and I think that for the layman, for the average person, I'm going to be too over-technical and wordy and there's going to be a lot to, to bite, bite off and chew. For anyone who has, uh, a, you know, a, a, has studied the, the issues that I'm talking about before, they will think that I'm highly under-studied uh, uh, in what I'm presenting. Um, and I think that's just because there's so much to the arguments. I could just keep, you know, I could go and go and go and go and go. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's so many different elements. I've, I've had to reorient my own mind probably nine or 10 times on what am I actually trying to write about here? And the reason why is because there's so many, you know, there's so many elements to it. Am I writing about Greco-Roman meals in the first century? Yes. Okay. Well, then what does that have to do with the Last Supper? And then how does the Last Supper fit it? You know, how does, I mean, there's just so many elements. Even down to, you know, one of the rabbit holes that our rabbit trails I went on was the idea of Codex Beza or Beze, however people want to say it. And the idea that uh, the, the Western text, there's a variant in Luke 22, 19. Now, I'm getting into some pretty technical things here, but basically the, the phrase, do this in remembrance of me, is not in the, uh, the Western text, in D, and uh, the other manuscripts of, of D. And so the question is, why? Well, I just wrote a, an entire section on why, what different scholars say. So, for instance, Bart Ehrman says, well, it was added by the Orthodox because, uh, you know, for various reasons. There's no good reason why it would be taken out. And so um, a lot of my research actually came down to what do I actually think happened? What do I think is, you know, okay, I don't think that it was taken out or I don't think it was put in by the Orthodox. I think it was taken out by the, by the Western church. But that then, makes sense. But then the question... But, that, but that's, that's, a un, that's a unique position you're taking, it sounds like, after talking to Dr. Ehrman, right? Well, yes and no. It's it, it is a so there's another guy. Your rationale, your rationale is unique. Yes. Well, Billings. There's a guy named Billings who wrote an entire dissertation on 
Codex D and what why it may have been taken out. Now he says, I, I we're on a to- I this is what happens when we don't have anything prepared. Um, no, this is all good. Uh, he it. says that the that it was taken out because of persecution due to in in France because uh, Codex D uh, was. Uh, we believe it was written in Lyon. So um, in Lyon, they were there was a lot of persecution against Christians, and he uh, suggests that uh, people believed that the Christians were cannibal, cannibalistic, and that they that the Eucharist was a was seen as cannibalistic. Eat my body, drink my blood, and so it was taken out of the text due to persecution. Now, I have a different view than Billings, and it's a view that I have not seen anywhere, nor do I believe it has ever been written before, which is always scary. Anytime, anytime you have something that's never been written before, you know you're going to get slaughtered by everyone. So, But, you know, honestly, who's, who's really going to read my stuff? Except for, like, Rob and my father and, you know. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure that the people in the chat room will be like, hey, can we get a copy of that? And, I, and I'll make it available for you. But the point is... Um. Yeah, I. Uh, it, it's taking so long to write because the amount of research that I've had to put in to, to do it has been uh, just painstaking. And not only that, but uh, there's also the question of: Do I just stop doing everything else? You know, currently I'm I'm in a full-on study on the Trinity and the uh, the formation of the doctrine of the Trinity. And when did it all start and all these kind of things. And so this this specific study has been really, really, really good for me uh, because I've been able to understand much better my like how all these things came about and my own theology. I've been able to expand my own theology on what I believe in terms of who God is and, and the way that he interacts with people. So currently I'm reading seven books and they're all on the Trinity. And at the same time, I got like eight books on behind me, all on First Corinthians that I got to try to wrap my head around so that I can actually make an effort in First Corinthians. Of course, I can't write on the entire book of First Corinthians. So, Caleb, back to, but I, w- I want to ask you a question based on what Dr. Noonan, how he framed his book. He's like, look, you enter into this world and people have gone before you and they don't all agree. Yeah. And what do we do in that situation? And now he's focused on language, but you're, what I hear you talking about is that it's the same thing, whether you're going to start talking about how to understand the last supper, or if you're talking about first Corinthians, which of course they do tie together. But my question to you is how come you can't just be interested in the things you're interested in and just sit down with like a King James Bible and, and write your book? Yeah, that's actually a really good question. And there, and, the, the reason why is because if you like just someone sit down, could just say the Bible's enough, man. Why do you need all those stuff? Yeah, well, I mean, the Bible is enough. But the question is, is how do, what do we understand the Bible to be? So, for yes. instance, if I if I open up the KJV, first of all, I don't realize that there's a variant in Luke twenty two nineteen. So the idea, first of all, any of the study that we've done on manuscript studies and and I mean. Half of trying to half of my study into uh, the the Western text and Codex D was trying to understand where that codex was written, and what and and what surrounding it was written in. In other words, like uh, for instance, okay, I, I'll give you an example. For my for my personal view on on the variant in Codex D on Luke twenty two nineteen, it matters an extreme amount. Whether or not, like my my conclusion would be would have to be. Let's 100, let's pull up that verse. What, while you're, uh, it's Luke. What is it? Nine, uh, twenty-two nineteen. Twenty-two nineteen. I'll, I'll keep talking, and I'll just pull it up. So the so my conclusion on my entire idea of this variant hinges on where this is written. If it's written in Jerusalem, if Codex D is written in Jerusalem, which it wasn't, by the way, but if it were then my conclusion would have to be 100% opposite from what it, from what my conclusion is. I can't tell you what my conclusion is yet because I haven't written it fully and, and whatnot. But if it's written in Lyon, in France, in a specific time period, 3rd to 4th century, now all of a sudden it's completely different than if it was written in Jerusalem in the 3rd or 4th century. 
Okay, so the verse were just for those, for the uninitiated. What Caleb's talking about is in Luke twenty-two nineteen. It's the middle of the Passover, of the Last Supper. And verse 19 says, And he, that is Yeshua, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Right. And what Caleb's point is, is that D, Codex D, lacks the whole verse or just the last part of it? Oh, man, I'd have to look at my work. I I think it's uh, it actually might even lack a little bit before that. Okay, so basically this this phrase I think is, it's all of 19 and part of and part of 18. Right. And Codex D is a is from the 400s, right? It's a it's a what we call a 5th century manuscript that has the gospels and acts for the most part. I mean it was a it was a a book that had the gospels and acts together. That's right. And that it's missing a core part of this um, this phrase. So, and so, Caleb's saying that's super important because the the core question is, should that be in the Bible or not? And you're making right. the point that if all I had was the King James Bible, you wouldn't I even wouldn't, know. You wouldn't I wouldn't know even know that there was a variant there. Exactly. And and what Caleb's talking about is that a level of scholarship where we need to have a higher bar of accountability so that we search matters out very very thoroughly which means i can't just take what what a bunch of men in england decided 500 years ago yeah in printing a bible in the english language as the be all end all it's an important milestone but we need to trace and see how did they make the, come to the decisions they made there's kind of a judicial review but then you're going back and say wow in the in the 500 years since the king james bible was printed produced and printed we have how many thousands of manuscripts now that were not accessible to them. So we have way more light, way more information. And this is one area. Here's how much information we have. Check this out. My father gave me this book when I first started my studies in the Eucharist. It's called 100 Years of Study on the Passion Narratives. Wow. And you would think, okay, this sounds like an interesting book. It's not actually a book. It's a bibliography. Everything is just entries oh of different goodness. papers, books, and lectures that have been given so that you can wow. reference. That wow. The whole book is like that. So they, that's that's uh, when you can't sleep in the middle of the night and you want some reading? Some it's light not reading. reading. It's no, like, I know, I know. It's, it's like, reference. okay, yeah. you know, you have a topic. I Okay, let's say this text, The Passion of Jesus and Non-Canonical Works. Okay. And by the way, by the time he gets to this, there's 2,154 entries already. So I have over 2,000 entries of different papers and books that I can look up. But the point is, is I'm never going to get to all that. Right. So it's not like, oh, I'm going to read everything that's been written on this. No, there's this no way. This is why, and we, we get in this in our theological research and writing class that I have the privilege to do. It's like, everything's interesting. Every, every, every entry in that book right. is going to be interesting. So, the, so we're not going for interesting. We're not going if because we could just spend the rest of our life just reading the reading those articles and and never do anything. So, so if it's all interesting, what are we doing when we're doing theological research and writing? We need to move beyond the sea of interesting for purposeful, right? A pur- purposeful uh, hypothesis. Like in other words, you got to have an argument drive your research. And then once you know, and now it doesn't mean you know exactly what your argument is, but you have what's a working hypothesis and you work with it. And then you go, and that is your filter device right. to divide from the sea of interesting into things that are actually relevant um, to what you're working on. But anyway. Let's let's uh, move because I feel like we've gotten into some interesting things, but they're not exactly where we were planning on starting. Um from the, the chat room is actually having a conversation about uh, a, a, that we're going to have in a few minutes. But let's start with this, because I thought this was really interesting. We got this this morning. Rob has not heard this, by the way. And OK, yeah, let's just read it. My husband and I are seeking wisdom on business opportunity to take over a butcher shop and slash meat processing shop in our local town. The current owner is a longtime friend who... 
uh, and fellow believer, but not Torah observant, that is ready to retire. My husband thinks this would be a great opportunity, but is having a crisis of conscience as one who eats according to God's dietary laws. He knows that he would be butchering and processing pork. This would not concern him as much if he were doing this for people who are not in covenant relationship with the Lord. However, he knows that it will be their their will. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. However, he knows that there will be believers coming into him that are not following the dietary laws and want their pork processed. Again, they are in covenant with God through Messiah, but are not Torah observant. Do you have any thoughts on this? P.S. Here's the passage we are praying about in Scripture, Deuteronomy 14.21. You should not eat anything that dies in, on its own. You may give it to the stranger who is in your city so that he may eat it, or you may sell it to the foreigner, since they are not under uh, foreigner, but you are people holy to the Lord your God. You shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk. Right, and that's a that's a good verse. You you want to read that in conjunction with the parallel in Leviticus and Tim Haig's book, Fellow Heirs, opens with the treatment of the Deuteronomy fourteen and the Leviticus. Is it seventeen? Sorry, I don't remember. Leviticus twenty one, maybe I don't remember. Anyway, there's a parallel in Leviticus, and the question is: the word "gare" is used in both. Right, and and one, the gare is just as unclean as the Israelite, and they both have to wash. That's the Levitical, whereas. Um, the if they eat the if they eat it. In other words, the, the same. There's no different consequence, and the obligation is both for the native and the gear in Leviticus. Whereas in Deuteronomy, it uses the word gear along with the whatever Ben Nohri or whatever the foreigner, and so that shows that. And we see this time and again. A one word has can have a couple different meanings, and right. we need to look at context. Um. That's that's a that's an interesting thing. I, I know what my my opinion is. If if you jump in, stop doing, don't process pork. You know what I mean? I mean that's that's what I would say. I think that there's um, I think that there's two. I think that there's three options here. I don't think that one of them is necessarily right and one of them is wrong. And there's an ultimate final hook on 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 these answers. I think that one is yeah you're going to be. Uh, Owning a, a, a meat processing, you know, butchery. And uh, so you can, A, either not process pork, which I know sounds ridiculous, right? It, it sounds like no butcher shop is ever going to, uh, is ever going to make it like that. However, if God wants you to make it, uh, not processing pork, then you will make it. You know, I've had people and friends who have said, my job absolutely will not let me have Saturdays off. There's just absolutely no way. Everybody's got to do it. And then, you know, you say, well, okay, we'll pray about it or trust in the Lord. And they, they, they go tell their boss, I'm taking Saturdays off. If I get fired, I get fired. And somehow they're the one person in the company that gets Saturdays off. You know what I mean? Like the, the almighty can, what the, whatever the almighty wills is what can happen. So obviously if you, own a butcher shop that doesn't process pork. If the Lord wills it to work, it'll work. Um, especially if you like, you know, smoke some really good brisket or something. Anyway, um, the other option is that you uh, obviously sell to sell pork, and then you don't discriminate. Consider that it's up to the other person or to the person that is coming in. It's not up to you whether or not, uh, you know, that person might go get pork. Some, if they don't get it from you, they're getting it from someone else. So, you, you know, that might be a rationale as well. The other option is, is that you go into a different business. However, all three of those options are not for me and you to weigh in on. This comes down to ask your local pastor. If you should be part of a community and... Uh, ultimately, this is something that you should pray about with your community and discuss with your leaders. So it sounds to me, it's interesting. That That's a good way to look at it, Caleb. It's not that he's buying uh, pigs and slaughtering them and selling. It sounds like people bring him 
a, a animal that's already been slaughtered and he cuts it up. I would assume that them, or I would assume that if you go to a butcher shop and you ask for a you know a slab of bacon, that they're going to have it. Yeah, yeah. In other words, I think that uh, I think that the butcher is, you know. Well, another issue would be if are they going to be open on the Shabbat? Like, in other words, <laughs> if you if if you're going to decide, yeah, we'll we're going to. Uh, we're not going to sell pork, but we'll be open on weekends or something. I mean, that's this is a, it's a. Uh, oh, Jason, Jason in the. Oh, wow! Listen to this, Jason in the chat room. This is this is an interesting comment. I work in sales, entertainment, cable TV, and internet. I wouldn't sell adult entertainment to a customer if they asked. They're both sin. Okay, fair point. Good point. However, the question is, if you're selling if you're selling internet to somebody and they're surfing the net for porn, you can't control You right, can't control that. that. Now, I know that Jason could come back and say, "Well, yeah, but you're actually giving them the pork." I mean, ultimately, once again, I think that this comes down to this is a community issue. I think that I mean, would I do it? I don't think so. And and the the I'm glad that they have a scripture that they're focused on. It says you shall be holy. So so that's going to be part of that conversation is what does it mean for us to be holy before him and to love him with all our heart, all our soul and all our strength. And are if he's given you an opportunity, if he's blessed you with some capital that you are able to invest and you're looking for a, an investment opportunity, maybe maybe this is not your, you know, maybe there's another thing he's going to show you, another path for you to grow and invest in a productive way that would be a blessing for your family and for those people you serve through that business, that would just be in a different avenue. But boy, yeah, that's a good question. Thanks I mean, for sending it in. I think you're in a little bit of a conundrum here in terms of, you know, what, what you want to do and how you want to do it. The fact that you're convicted about it tells me something, which is good. But the other thing is, is, you know, the unfortunate part is, is that the the unfortunate fact is that the the uh, likelihood of of this person being in a biblical community where the pastor's going to say, "I have a very strong opinion one way or the other," or, you know, I, I keep kosher and this is what I think on this, is probably. I mean, that's probably not what's going on here. And so this comes down to what do you think the Lord is leading you to do? Uh, would I slaughter? pork and sell it in a, in my shop. I have to say personally I don't think I would do that. Let me rephrase. Personally, I wouldn't do that. Um that's my that's me personally. I'm not a leader in this person's community whoever this person is. I you know, I I'm not I'm not a spiritual leader and so I hesitate to try to give advice on something like this. That, it, that seems to be something that should be a matter of a community conversation. You know, and if you were in a big enough community, you know, if you got, you know, if you got two or 300 people in a community, that would be another conversation for the community too. If I open a butcher shop that doesn't slaughter pork, would you buy from me even if it's a little bit more expensive? You know, I don't know. And, you know... I don't know. Uh, one other bit, though, too, just back to the Deuteronomy 14. It's not talking about unclean animals. It's not talking about pork. It's talking about eating animals that would normally be acceptable, but they died on their own. Right. So the applicability, <laughs> I guess, just from one other angle before we move on, is just that the applicability of Deuteronomy 14.21 would be, I have a business, I process meat kosher, you know, or what do you call it, biblically or uh, acceptable meats. And sometimes people bring in an animal that's already dead and they want me to cut it up and sell it or something. You know, that that seems to be a place that where Deuteronomy 1421 would be more applicable. But uh, it's not talking about people who ate pork, um, you know, that you should sell it. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about animals that would be acceptable under normal situation that have died of their own. In other words, it's a, it's a cow that was killed by, you know, let's say it got maimed or something and then it died. 
And then they're like, what do we do? Do we eat it? So, good question. If you've never had beef bacon, it's so good. You got to try it. I agree. There, I mean, it's... Caleb treated me some to some beef bacon. Yeah. That was, you said it was like a buck a slice or something. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was spendy stuff. It's That's super, really, but it was the, thick. Where we get it, it's like, it's like this long it and really it's thick. like this thick when yeah. it comes out of the package. You put, oh man. And, my wife loves it because she loves to eat it, but she hates it because I don't just cook enough strips for like everyone to have one or two. I can eat an entire bag of that stuff to myself. <laughs> and so like I'm cooking up like two or three bags of it and it's expensive. I think we get like eight slices for eight bucks. Wow. Yeah. But oh man, is it worth it? And here's the thing. Once you have beef bacon, turkey, ba- turkey ba- bacon tastes like you're eating cardboard. It cardboard. is the worst. Cardboard. I can't do it anymore. People are like, oh, we're having turkey bacon. I'm like, thank you. You you go ahead. You know, there's a place here in Tacoma. It's a southern dining place. The lady is a Christian. She decided that she wasn't going to have any pork in her entire establishment. She does southern cooking. This was featured, by the way, on uh, Dives, Drives, and, and Dine-Ins or whatever it was. Anyway. Wow. She does well. Her beef bacon is on point. I'll tell you that much. Okay, let's go on. Now, the chat room has already had this discussion, so, I mean, do we really need to? But let's. I don't know. I haven't. Is making or possessing an image of the Father or the Son biblically acceptable? This is an entire part of church history called the Iconoclast Disputes. Um, what do you think, Rob? <laughs> what side of the aisle do you fall on, brother? I see, like, I don't know. I might have a book. You know, I've, I think I've got a, oh, I know. There's like a Lego Bible. I don't know if I have a copy of it or not. I, I don't have remember. It. But it's, it's. I have it. Or the Minecraft Bible. I know, I I know Ben has that one. Okay. Yeah. So, it's, or cartoons. I did. I did have it. I got it in Israel. I got a little cartoon gospel thing with Hebrew, you know, little bubble people talking to each other. Okay. So, is that what it's talking about? Or, you know, I know people that are of the, Orthodox faith, the Christian Orthodox, and they have icons, you know, throughout their house. And, and that, frankly, that creeps me out. Yeah. So I've told, I'd I've say said, I, I'm okay with the cartoon in the little Lego Moses or whatever, but, um, and you know, I'm okay with like on Shabbat, kids have little coloring pictures of Moses in the Red Sea or whatever, you know, parting the waters and they Yeshua, color it. Yeah. I'm okay with that. But with when when there's a theology of of iconography, which is in the the, the Eastern Orthodox or the uh, what do you call it, Greek Orthodox, where it's like there's a halakha. You can learn all about this of like they don't use the word halakha, but there's a way what makes an acceptable icon it has to do with the eyeball and the iris whether the iris can touch the eyelid or not and how the the skin tones are because they have a theology of presence they believe that the presence of the icon somehow mediates the present of that presence of that saint or figure that's to me when you start doing that that's weird and but some of them argue that this is they look at ancient jewish synagogue mosaics and argue oh jews jews did it too but those are all byzantine those are all not only not only that but i hate to i hate to be the bearer of bad news for everyone israel has not been the model of of what yeah they also have zodiac uh, monotheism they also have giant zodiacs on their synagogue floor too yeah, exactly. With like Helios and well, so. I mean, I'm not trying to put Israel down, but if we, I mean, start start yeah. from coming well, over the Red from, Sea, from the, but from that, they're they're thinking, oh, this has Jewish roots, and so that it gives it it lends legitimacy in their eyes. But I think it, it gives me the creeps in the same way that at a Catholic church you see the the stations of the cross or whatever, and they do they're supposed to pray at each one. To me, that's nonsense. It's just. There's a lot I got to talk about here because you've brought up so many different things. First of all, when it comes to kids' Bibles, so my family has gone on a quest to find a good kids' Bible. We have the Action Bible, we have the Lego Bible, we have the Minecraft Bible, and we have about four or five other Bibles. There's like a Surfer's Bible, too. Now, I yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of different stuff. But we have all these different Bibles uh, that are geared towards children. First of all, let me tell you. 
do not think that just because uh, it's a child's Bible, the theology uh, has not been sugge- has not been determined while it's being written. In fact, if you look at things now, I don't know what side people are going to come down on. I think it's in it's either in the Minecraft Bible or the Lego Bible. It might be the Lego Bible. The person has obviously tried to intertwine things like evolutionary model versus creationist model from the very beginning. You know, it, the wow. theology is is really bad. So you have to kind of pick and choose what you're going to read to your child in that Bible. And I, as weird as that sounds, it's just how it is. Uh, so be very leery. Don't just don't just grab one of those Bibles and think that you're going to be able to you know read it to your child straight through. It's not like that. You actually got to pick and choose. When it comes to the uh, the uh, yeah the what are they called the icons that the you know I mm-hmm. I tend to be fascinated with uh, monasteries so I've tried to watch every single documentary ever you know that ever comes along on on various monasteries I saw one and I don't know why I think it's just the absence of or maybe just such a simple life of prayer. That is very attractive, but at the same time, I don't think it's biblical. Anyway, um, I came across one, and there was a lady, a, a nun, and her only job was to make those. And she was like one of the great icon makers. And she was like certified by the church to make these yeah, icons. Yeah. She's like a coach. She's like a hexer. Yeah, exactly. Like a, she knows how like to who made your, Someone comes to your house, and you're like, hmm. who made that? Who made your Saint Thomas? <laughs> oh, that's a that's a uh, Mrs. Johnson Saint Thomas. Oh, I, I like this house. Kids, go ahead. You can play. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you can pray to this image. I think the Bible is so clear that images are not supposed to be used in worship. Even Yeshua, no stately form or majesty that we should look upon. In fact, one time, and what happened with the? We know from the example of the serpent, bronze serpent, that. In the in Kings, we read about how they had set it up and had were burning incense to it for this bronze serpent that Moses had made in the wilderness. Right, right. Was it Josiah? He he destroyed it. Yes. Yeah. So, it, so the idea is like, like what is that applicable to our topic? You know. Yeah. Okay. I, uh, I can find that now. So I mean, I just don't think that you know the whole idea that that icons should be used or anything like that. I think it's against Torah. Okay, I found it. So, so this is. Uh, I thought it was first. It's Second Kings. Um, uh, Second Kings, and it, it it says in the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah the son of Ahaz. So it was Hezekiah. He. This is Second Kings eighteen. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars cut down the Asherah, he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it, which, and the that's from burnt incense to it. And it was called Nehushtan. So check this out. So go ahead. Hezekiah, it, I mean, if that's not, you know, destroying iconoclasm, then what is, you know? Yeah. Um, by the way, just as a side, I've told this story before. A couple years ago in my suka, I put up a frame. You know, all the kids and, and my wife, they they put up, you know, different pictures and stuff like that. And, you know, of, of barley and, you know, apples and all sorts, all sorts of different things. We have pictures of the family in there. I took a frame. I put a white piece of paper in it, put it up. And then I put the verse under it that said, no stately former majesty that we should look upon. <laughs> uh, I thought that was really clever. Um, Christina, I didn't realize that your group is going through Acts. It's interesting that we're in the exact same chapter right now. Cool. You should uh, let me know which, uh, what what you're using to go through Acts. We can exchange notes. Um, okay, let's go back to my notes here. Um, what time is it? How are we doing on time? We're doing all right on time. Um, okay. I've been told. Okay, this is an interesting question. We've already talked a little bit about the Lord's Supper. I've been told Easter is Passover by Protestants and Catholic friends. However, 
When I look at the edicts passed by emperors and Pope Victor, if Easter is Passover, why were the Quadradecimans under threat of death for continuing to keep Passover in the manner of the Jews? Ephesians, uh, Ephesian bishop Polycrates kept the tradition in the manner of John the disciple. That could be argued. Yes, I understand that. Okay, that okay. Let's just say that that's true. Um, do you think these kinds of edicts would would have been passed? Had the disciples still been alive? There's a lot going on in this. I'm not sure if the actual question, if the um, if the the disciples were still alive, is a valid question. Only because I think that the disciples were certainly still celebrating the 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 festivals. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So I mean, but. I mean, let's just start from the beginning. I've been told that Easter and Passover by by the Protestants and Catholic friends that Easter is Passover by my Protestant and Catholic friends. They, you know, this is a this is an interesting thing within the within the Torah movement. You got people who say, "Oh, Easter is the pagan festival of Ishtar." I don't think that we have any evidence of this. In fact, I think that if I, I know that this is not a popular view within the within the Torah movement. I think that if we look at the at the progression of the church celebrating what has become known as Easter, which by the way was the German word of the month, Ishtar is the is the is the name of the month. Like we would say January or February, and over in most of the world, Easter is still called anyone anyone. Pas- Pasca. 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 Uh, so the point is, is that the progression that we have, it's not like the Christians were like, okay, we hate the Jews, so let's look at our pagan roots. Ah, yes, we celebrate this festival to the god Ishtar, and we're going to just celebrate that and call it Easter and celebrate that as Jesus' birth. That's not what happened. There's no evidence whatsoever for that at all. Now, granted, I understand that the idea of bunnies and eggs, eggs are more controversial than the bunnies. Obviously, the bunnies, uh, you know, I, I understand that this can be pagan in nature. I'm not saying that there isn't some paganism that could have seeped in. But ultimately, the celebration of Pascha or Easter by the Christians came from the celebration of the Last Supper, which was Passover. And the traditions that went along with it for much of the time and even into our modern time still attach themselves in some way to Passover. Now, granted, we have things like the Quattrodesman debate whether or not Easter or Pascha should be celebrated on the same day that the Jews celebrate the Passover, which is Nisan 14. This was a huge debate. And ultimately, I don't think it was right for the church to do this. And I don't think that the the mindset behind it was correct either. They wanted to separate themselves from the Jews because the Jews, in their view, not only killed Christ, but also rejected Christ. And so they wanted to, to do everything possible to separate themselves. And from- it started, had it started... Um creating or solidifying standardizing a liturgy right yes right the emergence of yes. the what we call the agada the hagada comes as a response and this is israel yuval writes about this so in other words you've got an argument we celebrate like early early apostles we celebrate passover we celebrate passover yeah but we celebrate passover that Yeshua teaches us too. And, and we want you to accept Yeshua. We don't accept Yeshua, but we still hold to the Passover. So that all of a sudden starts to, to split up. So the question in the chat room is, didn't Constantine and following emperors forbid the church to observe Passover? Didn't they fiddle with the dates to make sure they were separate? But yeah, this is the quadradesman debate. So the, the debate was, should we... Uh, should we celebrate Pascha on the 14th of Nisan, or should it be on the nearest Sunday? In other words, Christ wrote, this is the mindset, this, um, this is not my view, okay? but this is the mindset of what was going on. Christ died on a Friday, which is true, by the way. This is pretty much, 
I know that there's all this debate over that, this, but there's no debate on it. The scriptures are very clear. Christ dies on a Friday. He rises on a Sunday. So the church says, should yeah, we... Well, and we, but when we say that, we're, we are making a point that we understand there are people in the larger messianic realm that have explored all sorts of other ways. Yeah, I understand that people are wrong think, on this, but that, think, that's not the point. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not trying to be a, a jerk about it, but the, people are wrong. Yeah, yeah no, I And then there are people who are right. And the people who are right believe that Yeshua died and know that Yeshua died because the scriptures say so on a Friday and that he rose on a Sunday. Okay, so with that settled, um, the, the question that the church fathers, quote-unquote church fathers, were dealing with was, do we celebrate pa- the Passover or the resurrection of Christ on the day he rose, which would be a Sunday, or do we celebrate it on the date he rose or the date that he was crucified, which would be the, the Jewish Passover? The answer that they came up with was, let's separate from the Jews, let's fix it to a Sunday, because that's when he rose. Hence, this is why, and let's never celebrate it on the same time that the Jews celebrate it, because essentially, they're Christ killers, was basically the the thought pattern behind it. Now, this was, was this anti-Semitic? Yes. Yes, it was. There was anti-Semitism, certainly, that was was wrapped up in, in this. There's no doubt about it. But the point is, is that, yes, there was this idea of let's separate from the Jews and we're going to fix it to a Sunday. Was this right biblically? Absolutely not. So, uh, but the point is, is that there's this notion within the Torah movement. Oh, Easter is 100% pagan. It came from a pagan celebration of Ishtar. There is no evidence for this at all. In fact, the evidence actually points to the, the Jewish celebration of Passover, Christians wanting to celebrate something but not wanting to be seen as Jews, and moving this celebration to a fixed day of Sunday instead of a fixed day of Nisan 14, and then expanding out from there. It's not. It doesn't come from a pagan celebration. Now, are there pagan elements that might have come in later? That's possible. However, the idea that that eggs were, uh, you know, a fertility sign that was brought in because of that, that can be debated. There is, I mean, even the early uh, Eastern Orthodox have have literature on eggs being a sign of resurrection. So I'm not saying that that's where it came from, but I'm saying that these these points are debatable. That's all I'm saying is that it it is debatable. So when you when you hear people spouting off, oh, this comes from the celebration, the fertility celebration of Ishtar, who came down the river in an egg and hatched, and and uh, her symbol was a bunny. I'm sorry, we just don't have any. There's no evidence of that. There's late evidence. You can go to Hislop and find that. <laughs> okay, we are so in the weeds right now. I don't even know where we're at. Uh, this is what happens. This is what happens, folks. Okay, let's go back to my notes. I think we got one more. I think we can come up with one more. There's two more things on my list that we could talk about. We never ever did talk about um, Jubilees and, and Enoch. We don't have to do that today. Okay. This is an interesting one from our good friend PJ, who we love very much. PJ writes in and says, Recently, I feel like I've noticed a growing segregation of the elderly within churches. It caught my attention when I was listening to Todd Friel discuss this issue. I watched that as well, which I'll add the link below, blah, blah. So my question is this. Can you guys discuss what this commandment looks like in a community? Leviticus 19.32 from the ESV says, You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. End quote of Bible passage. I love that commandment. So do I. And, and so, I mean, the basic ways, if you're sitting, you know, you're sitting talking and, and an elder comes in, you stand up and you go shake their hand or give them a hug and, or acknowledge them, you know, I mean, says, that's a simple thing. He goes on, he says, so often I see within churches a disregard for elderly people, elderly authority and elderly advice. Should there be distinctions like an elderly Bible study and youth Bible study? I'm in my 20s, and I know that I've experienced times when I've tried sharing audio clips of elderly people teaching God's Word in my... Wait, this is separate from PJ's. 
is this PJ's? PJ's, PJ's not, not 20. 20 in his 20s. I was going to say. <laughs> Sorry, PJ, but P- you're older than me, my friend. PJ was, PJ <laughs> was in his 20s when he was rocking the star <laughs> leotard back in the 80s. Okay, so yeah, that, so that must be. But anyway, it's a great, great point. Yes. Yeah, so I, I got, I got a lot to say about this actually. First of all, the question of what, how do we observe this commandment in Leviticus nineteen thirty-two? I think it's important for us to let our children know that elders in the community, and not necessarily appointed elders, but that the elderly people in the community have a lot of wisdom. Right. And that they need to respect the fact that they have been through a lot more than we have. This was something my father tried to teach me when I was, you know, I think society always has this idea of, oh, kids in their, in their 16, you know, I wish I was 16, then I'd know it all. Right. I mean, that's the, the, and many times, especially in our society, that's the truth is that the teenagers feel like they know better than anyone else. But I think that some of that has to do with how we, uh, how we raise our children to view those who are older than them. And I think that this even comes, uh, even within a somewhat of a pecking order of age within siblings. In other words, my eight-year-old son, or my he's seven, my seven-year-old son is going to outweigh the younger children slightly in opinions because he's older. In other words, your brother's older than you. Respect, you know, respect him. And once we get into the old, the elderly people, I think that there should be a very strong uh, respect and and whatnot from our children, as I believe Rob has already said. When it comes to elderly, like elderly Bible studies, I think why would you want to take all the wisdom of the people who are older and segregate it away from the people who are younger who need that wisdom? Yeah, that's why, you know, our, at Heart of Messiah, we try to have, you know, there's times where a parent needs to take a kid out for a little bit or something. But generally, sure. you know, we, we encourage families to to stay together during the whole service. You know, exactly. so you have, and, and, and that's, there's discussion elements in there. There's worship. We do have special stuff for the kids, you know, for our community. We have a little basket full of little kid uh musical instruments like little clappers and and uh egg shakers and tambourines and they come around and they grab their little instrument and and do a little parade and then they put it back you know so we do stuff that's specific for the kids but it's everything we do from there to worship to own egg and to the message is open and and welcome for all the all the generational uh slices yeah, um, but yeah, I think I think honoring the the elders for their especially you know we meet people that walked with the Lord like more than I've been a lot longer than I've been alive. You know, like there's a someone who's you know whom I love dearly. You know, he's been a believer since 1965. He turns 80 this year. I'm like, oh, you're just old enough to have you know where Moses had the burning bush uh, <laughs> visitation there. You know, you're ready to go to Egypt now, and you've got another 40 years of wilderness wandering. Yeah, but you know, there's a there's a it's amazing a, a question that is <laughs> it's I it's obviously I think I hope it's obviously sarcastic in some way, but it says, "What do you do when the elders in your church are pacifistic hippie Christians?" I mean, the fact is, is that I don't think we need to necessarily agree with everything that an uh, older person says. That's not what we're saying. Yeah, that's not what the commandment is. The commandment is not to agree with everything an elder tells you, you know. But the point is, is that there's still some wisdom there, right? Just the fact that you've been on earth for... got to listen for it. You just got to listen yeah, for it. Exactly. And be patient and, and have a servant's <laughs> heart. All right, have a well... Ser- servant's heart. As everyone can tell from this show, we need you to write in and, and talk to us. Uh, send your questions in. Send your uh, your your comments in. We got, uh, well, let's see here. Our comment line is 253-465-3205. 253-465-3205. Our email address, chegg, that's C-H-E-G-G, at torresource.com. 
Go ahead and send us your emails. Um, Christina, I didn't realize that you guys were in uh, Axe. You can write me an email and tell me what you guys are using. I'd be interested to know about it. Tor Resource has produced this show along with our other producers. You can go to Tor Resource. Hopefully, we're going to launch this site very, very soon. And once we do, it's going to be a lot easier to find stuff. Uh, I cannot wait for that. Um, yeah. And anything else you want to say before we go? Nope. Um, we thank you guys for uh, for all your support and feedback. And uh, we're always in prayer that what we do with our little conversation here is a blessing to y'all. No doubt. All right, guys. We hope that this conversation has glorified our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Why? Well, because Messiah matters. Messiah matters.